So let us see if we can set the stage here, first by turning on the microphone. Let us see if we can uh, set the stage here for, for this link and dependent origination, which are the talks that we are, we are doing this year. And uh, I think uh, the dinner party analogy has worked, and so we'll just continue to milk it a little more. And that is that we have a large dinner party now formed around the table, uh, each one with a particular energy feeding into the whole of the system. And uh, although these will not be sequential and how they've been uh, outlined in the talks, we have ignorance in the forefront of the table, sort of the masters of ceremony, which uh, he holds everyone not to be seen. He holds everyone in the dark, basically. Make sure that no light gets in so that any of these guests can be perceived. So they're free to do whatever their energy tells them to do, essentially. So we have a lot of guests besides ignorance, although ignorance is the master of ceremonies. We have uh, mental formations, and the formations of mind that seem to come from nowhere. <clears throat> and all of a sudden we have ideas, and we have thoughts, we have emotions, we have contents, uh, images. Uh, we have uh, a naming process going on, whereby uh, the perception is seen and then named as something. We have consciousness that seems to hold the compelling voices of all that have gathered into a kind of unified and coherency that allows it to be seen not as chaotic so much as being kind of uniformly felt and uh, coordinated. And then we have contact, which is the bare awareness meeting the object, and then we have feelings that arise from that contact. And then last week we also had uh, desires that arise after those feelings compel the mind forward a little bit and also there are the six senses and on and on. We've got a lot of, a lot of guests at the table. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, which is a very important component, all these seats, there are probably seven or eight seats around the table, there is no one uh, who is there uh, called you or me. There's no me there. Now, but kind of analogous to the chattering at the table are, for, for those of you who are familiar with music, when a harmony is reached, uh, there's often an overtone that you can hear uh, from that harmony that is uh, presented. So there's the, the notes of harmony, and then an octave above that is some overtone that isn't actually... Uh, derived by the sounds of the instrument, but by the uh, consolidation and confluence of all those notes arising together. That's analogous to the sense of me at the table. All of the chattering with all the guests, there's no me there. But if you put them all together, there's an overtone to their conversation that has a sense of me in it. And it's a very distinct sound can be heard very separate from the, the pitch or the harmony that's the voices themselves. 
And so that gives a sense that all of this is being under one ownership, under one principal property, under one person's control. And that overtone, sort of uh, everyone concedes to it. All the different guests at the table concede to it. But it is also based in ignorance. That is, ignorance shields the sense of that overtone, the sense of me, from being seen. And therefore, continuing on as something that's prominent within can be heard, can be energetically sensed, but is not actually at the table itself. So that's, an, that's interesting, I think. So let us move from what we have known uh, from last uh, talk, which is the desiring component. Desire is, is sort of, you know, the mind is coming up now with a compelling alternative to reality. And the feeling tone is sort of leading or pointing the mind in a direction that says, you know, don't stay here. Look elsewhere. There's a better moment available to you up ahead. And uh, because ignorance is the controlling element at the table, we don't recognize that as thought. We recognize that as the truth of what we need to do. So we look up from the reality and we look at where the uh, emotion, the feeling, the desire, and the thought is taking us. We look up and away. Now, uh, that's the desiring component. And it's just, it's, it can be um, a, a very um, passive desire, you know, just sort of, just sort of a background uh, ache that we have. Or it can be a very uh, energetic desire where we're passionate about seeing something. But the next step of it is really the grasp. It's where the claws come into us, where we get the painful element of all of that. And that is, it moves from sort of an alternative reality to something that is at issue, almost a survival issue for us. I need this. That energy, which might have been just almost uh, secondary to whatever else is going on, suddenly gets uh, infused with some energy and an intention and a focus. So it suddenly feels as if something's coming out of the dark that is very demanding and very uh, relevant to our lives. And that is, I call it grasping or clinging. Those are two synonymous words. Uh, and I'll use them back and forth. But this sense of clinging, this can be energetically felt. The grasping mind, the clinging mind is forming itself and you can feel how in the compelling need to have something, the the sense of self being formed, so in other words, that overtone, leading all the voices into a concerted into a concerted direction and focus, now has the energy that holds the entire floor. And it feels extraordinarily important that we get wherever this thing is pointing towards. It's, I can't overemphasize the movement from this sort of compelling interest, which was a desire, to a, a ferocity of survival that is the grasping. And 
That's why grasping is so difficult to really break the ignorance cycle because there's so much momentum in the leaping forward. It's as if a, a, a lion was uh, jumping at you and you had to be aware of its teeth and be aware of its throat and see that it's you know five paws or whatever, having five, four paws and a, you know, you know. No, you just want to get out of there. So the juices, the chemistry of the organism is very much coming to bear in this sense of grasping. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, the voices are in crescendo now. They're, it's all hyperbole. It's all uh, exaggerated. It's all in some kind of fervor that uh, has, where did it come from? You know, it's like this need in us. And this need in us is often a, a sense of sort of an insufficiency in us. We, when we have a desire, there can be kind of uh, a background of feeling of discontentedness that leads to desiring. But when we're grasping, when we're clinging to something for our survival, there, there's, a, there's a huge hole of self-deficiency def- that feels, uh, that comes, arises with a desire. That I need this for my survival that I cannot stand alone without it. And there's a loss of sanity, obviously. You can hear it in it. Uh, and we will, in many cases, defend this to our death. So if you just think about where you could be pushed to the point where you would defend your life in that manner, that is where you're clinging. Uh, so uh, clinging is uh, not a small, a small uh, juncture here. It's not a small linkage. It's a, it's a major linkage. Now, uh, I mean, not every one of them have that kind of I'll fight this till my death scenario around them. They're not quite that tight, but many of them do. And the Buddha grouped uh, clinging into four categories. Now, you can, we can cling to anything, so let's not take these categories as complete, but as the general way that our minds organize our clinging nature. One is sense pleasures, and we'll talk about each one of these things. Uh, one is uh, views and opinions, the second. Uh, the third are rites and rituals, uh, one of my favorites, actually. <laughs> and then my fourth, the fourth one is the clinging to the sense of I. Uh, so what, we have this uh, energy force that is trying to be fulfilled through uh, the acquisition of something. In fact, uh, it's, kind of, it's burying its claws into where the desire took it. So it's no longer looking ahead of itself so much as establishing or trying to fix whatever it's grasped so that it will not move. That sense of fixation, that sense of keeping it so that it will not, uh, that it cannot change, is the way that the clinging mind forces the sense of self forward to claim its ownership. So the object becomes the placeholder for our sanity, for our, for our uh, contentment. If we lose the object or person, place or thing, 
we lose our sanity within that. Now, let's just take us an example that many of us know, not all, the example of romantic interests. Right? Now, it's interesting because there's an awful lot that can be fleshed out here. Most of us feel bereft of any sense of love in ourselves. We know the tensions of our uh, self-centered existence. And then at some ripe age, uh, pre-teen or early teens, there can be an infatuation. And for once in our life, uh, our sense of self becomes larger than the kind of encrusted way we have known it. And there's this huge opening in which uh, love is available through our vulnerability or willingness to be vulnerable. And that then is projected onto a person who happens to be uh, energetically the right person for my vulnerability to open. And then that love is placed upon that person. And we say, I love you. We don't realize that the love that we're giving the person is coming from us. We think the love is coming from them. And if we lose them, we lose the love. And therefore, we try to hold on to them, possess them, or try to contain them in some way so that we can continue to have this very unified feeling of being in love. In love. And so the grasping comes from the sense or the emotional sense of the person carrying something that's vital to me. Well, part of it is correct. It is vital to you. Love is vital to you. It's just not coming from where we think it is. And yet the person often, because of the maturity of their age, although it can happen at any age, it usually happens relatively young the first time, uh, we lose our bearing. And the grasping occurs in relationship to that loss of... Because ignorance is, ignorance is creating the field of inattention. So we don't realize where this is coming from. And so we lose ourselves in that. Um, but it's an interesting way to really begin to understand that the giving away of our contentment, be it love or be it uh, the satisfaction or the calmness or the quietude or whatever it is that we're seeking in the external world, is often object associated. And that object has somehow allowed us to touch the place in us that we feel settled enough to want to for that contentment to to be acquired, you know, if I mean, it can be a small object or a large object, but it provides a level of satisfaction that we haven't known, and then we, and therefore we come around it very guardedly, trying to protect and defend it from, from moving on. We want it fixed. We want it located and fixed, and we want it certain for ourselves. So let's look at these four. Uh, categories, take them through each one, and look at see, and see how the clinging quality within us moves uh, with each of these categories. Now, the first category, uh, sense pleasures, clinging. By the way, clinging in Pali is upadana, which means the fuel. It's the fuel on which the self. Uh, 
is manifests. So this upadana, nature within us, sense pleasures. Okay, we spend a lot of time talking about sense pleasures. We've actually talked about most of these, perhaps not rites and rituals, but we've talked about sense pleasure, but I just want to, I want us to see how sense pleasures are ingrained, especially in this culture, in us. Uh, even this a single cell organism uh, will move towards a pleasant uh, sensation as opposed to an unpleasant one. So it's in our genetic makeup that we will, as an organism, move in the direction of pleasant sensations. But in this culture, uh, we have uh, made it into a, our national right to have it. And I mean, we think when we talk about you know, defending areas of land or people that we are being somehow protective of those people. But often, if you look beneath the surface, there's an issue of pleasant or unpleasantness associated with our defense. In the course of the, course of the Middle East, it's oil. And you think, okay, so yeah, I need gas to run my car. No, no. You, oil is the basis for our pleasure in terms of heating, in terms of much of the satisfactory ways that we live. And we are really defending our need for pleasure. And not only that, we've built up the military to be able to do that so that uh, people really can't talk back, so we can have our way. And we think it's our given right to do that. It always gets me, you know, that we cut down our trees but we asked Brazil uh, to, you know, not to cut down theirs. And here's a, a young, thriving country who is growing. And I mean, what are we doing? What do, where, is our, where, where is our guidance system here, our ethical guidance system? Uh, and climate uh, considerations is another thing. We, you know, the third world should get there. India and China should not. But what are we doing? You know, I just... It's because of this need for pleasure. This isn't a political talk. It's one that has a direct relevance to what we and how we hold life and how we relate to our living situation. So uh, I remember one time I was coming back from Asia after having been there for four years. Never had a, a warm bath or shower in all those years. Just used rainwater to wash myself from a big well. And I landed in England, and some friends were there, and they said, well, why don't you take a shower? Or... <laughs> and I said, I think I, think I will. <laughs> and so I, I stood in front of that shower, and it was warm water. And I thought, my God, every, how could you ever take this for granted? It, there had been enough time so that I never thought of taking that for granted again. And I went down, I remember after that shower, and I just, I said, well, you know, this is amazing. Hot water is amazing. They thought I was a little strange, but it's, it, it's, it becomes almost um, incongruent to our life to think that we wouldn't have access to warm water. Well, 
there, we have a, an aging water heater at our house. And sometimes you turn on the water and it isn't as warm as you'd want it to be. And I've got to call the, you know, I've got to call the, we're going to get a new water. All of that takes place with five degree difference between what you wanted and what you're getting. So somehow the whole sense of bathing for four years in cold water has been lost to me. And I'm arguing now about the need to keep my refined pleasure within a certain gradient. And that's what happens to each one of us. We've all lived within certain, uh, within a certain context of pleasure. And we just don't want that to be disturbed. And we sense that climate change is going to disturb that. So it's up to India and China to set the record straight while we keep our lives going by driving, what? Driving cars that get 40 miles to a gallon instead of 25, and we think that's going to take care of the problem. No, it's going to be a problem that changes our disposition to pleasure. That's the real problem. That's the real grasping. That's the real denial. And it's so impactful that you can see the level of denial in people. In fact, after I talk about climate change, which I do often in talks, I often get notes from one of you, or many of you, saying the Wall Street Journal just proved that climate change wasn't... God, come on, people. I don't want a Murdoch paper telling me anything. (laughs) But more importantly, this is just denial. Let's get on with this thing. Move forth. or Or the chaperone that's going to be accompanying us through this whole ordeal is going to be ignorance. And the restlessness that comes when, you know, when the, like on a retreat, which is the object of a retreat is to see and dispel some of the conditions of the way we struggle and suffer. That's what a retreat is supposed to do. And yet what we do is we try to make it into a containment for the, for the we try to turn the knobs of pleasure so that there isn't too much noise. If there's too much noise, you know, that's not a good retreat. And that there's, you know, the right environment and not raining all the time and you have good teachers and, you know, so all the knobs have to be in a certain alignment. Now I had a good retreat. When the point of it all, you know, is to deal with the irritations, to deal with the annoyances, to deal with, with how this thing feels when it's a little off center, a little out of kilter. That's the point. Not just to have a passive dreamlike trance for a week in which I can claim what? That I can claim what? Oh, it was a great retreat because I wasn't disturbed. You see? Being disturbed is the point. Because our pleasure is what's disturbed. And we get very restless when that we think that's being invaded, being irritated. And so it's, it's helpful, I think, to, when we talk about sense pleasures to bring in the word renunciation. And that's a word that many of us dislike because we feel like it's a forced, a forced restraining. Or, you know, we have to restra- hold ourselves back in check somehow or some austerity is going to be, which is not what renunciation is at all. 
Renunciation is asking just an important question to your life. What, just to start out, what is it really important to me? And am I living so that that importance comes forward in my life? And what am I doing to block the importance that I have held life to be? You see, that's, that's a question of renunciation. But it's going to impact the level of our pleasure. When you ask questions like that, the knobs get all screwed up. You know, do I need what? What don't I need that I so, so depend upon? And I lose a context to. And it's not important when we bring this word on that we throw everything out in the trash because we think it's excessive and we try to be kind of an austere person, you know, and live in sort of faked simplicity. But to really let our awareness in, to dispel the ignorance and to see what, what this is offering me. When I sit in front of the TV and just zone out, what is that offering? What's that doing for me? What's the benefit of that? How does that help my life? Not being afraid to ask those questions because they're going to address the pleasure of zoning out. There's a pleasure in zoning out. That's what you're receiving, quite likely. The inability to think or to be aware, but just that zoning feeling, which can feel so much like a relief to the problematic day you've had. So that's what you're getting, but then the limitation of that. To be able to ask a question about the nature of the pleasure itself. What's the limitation that this pleasure is imposing? Let me just see. What's it doing for me? What's it doing to my mind? What's it doing to me in the long, in the long haul? And I think asking those questions, it's not, a, it's not a threat question. It's a question of awareness, of aliveness. As we remove the excessive need to lose our attention within the pleasure, what comes up, what arises from there is aliveness, not deadness. Deadness is the loss of the aliveness that we found within the pleasure. But the removal of that excessiveness, you find a natural vibration of heart. So, uh, again, these are questions that each one of us can't be compelled to ask, but at a certain point in everyone's practice, those questions need to be asked to sort of stir things up a little bit to get us going here, to look, to see, to, so that we aren't just resting contentedly, clinging to a particular level of, of sleepwalking. Okay, so that's uh, uh, sense pleasures. Uh, attachment to views and opinions, I, I, that's a... Again, you know, this culture is, has such a heavy weight on the knowledge that we all have. And to think that, you know, because what knowledge allows us to do is to provide the certainty and the established order that our views and opinions can then hold on and elaborate with. So uh, views and opinions are very, very important to almost everyone. 
And if you look at some of the views and opinions that each of us hold that we would defend, you see, uh, they're, they're, they're pretty easily seen. Uh, equal rights. Fairness issues. Right? You defend that. Probably have. Political persuasion. Why your party's right. Religious beliefs. I know that one brings extraordinary conflict. Prejudices that you believe to be true. It's a view and opinion. Bodily views, what you think your body looks like and how it should look like, all the views associated with, with your body image. Self-assumptions, the views you have of yourself, very strongly held. Defended, all of these things are defended as the right way to live. In fact, if you look at that series of views and opinions, you'll see why you live the way you do. And you'll see what makes life worthwhile for you to live the way you do. And it just feels like an uphill, uh, it feels like moving uphill when you're in a group that is in some way out of sync with one of those views. I remember I, when I was uh, getting a ticket, I was, I'll never forget this, when I was getting a ticket uh, to go to Asia, I was in England to be a monk. Uh, I was in my early 20s or mid-20s or something. I can't quite remember when. And I was in line. And I was at the uh, Pakistanian Airlines, which was the cheapest ticket. And I was there. And I wasn't getting any closer to the counter. And I just wasn't paying any attention, except that an hour went by and there were still 10 people in front of me. I couldn't... And then I finally started paying attention. And the Pakistanians were bringing people just... That needed, that would come by, and they had no sense of queuing, fair queuing. <laughs> Just for, I, and then I got, my God, <laughs> you know, I'm losing my. So I was telling the Pakistanians what they needed to do to be, you know, all that. <laughs> didn't they? Just laughed at me. They didn't care what I thought, because my fairness issues were being touched. You see, with a clinging, the grasping at that. There's no flexibility. Remembering that all of these grasping categories fixate life, force life into a certain category, mental category, not an objective category, not a true category. There is no fairness in life. Look out. Look around. You don't see fairness as an issue of nature. It's not. But we try to make it one and defend that because it's unnatural. It doesn't mean it's wrong in a community to be fair. It's the way I would like to live in a community, to be honest. But when it's your view and everything has to be squared away, you're going to have trouble with the Pakistanians. (laughs) And religious beliefs or bodily images or on and on these things go. And we we have refused to allow a movement, a flexibility, an understanding, a malleability within ourselves. We think this is the proper way to live and we have a righteous indignation for anyone who doesn't. This is the clinging. This is where everyone at the table, 
the dinner table, all ten guests, or however many they are, are clamoring in the overtone of ourselves is very much presiding. Attachment to views. All right, so this is, uh, well, before I do that, I want to just mention about uh, Martin Luther King because I think it has something to do with views and opinions here and prejudices. Now, 50 years ago, 1963, I was in high school. I remember that original speech in the March on Washington, and I remember the, uh, the tremendous, uh, I don't know, just the power of, of that transformative experience of seeing the numbers and feeling the uplift of the communication by Martin Luther King. And it really had me look at my set beliefs, even as a young high school person, uh, you know, to, to really challenge it. You know, I could feel that I was missing something by the prejudice I held in relationship to what I was seeing now, 50 years later, we can certainly see some gains and advantages and loss of fervency around prejudicial issues, but it remains. There's a substrata that remains very much, partially because those of us who are white are privileged. We're privileged in our position of whiteness, which is a pleasurable place to be. And we defend that pleasurable place of whiteness by not further looking at the level of prejudice we have that forces forces minorities out of that out of that uh, privilege. And so you get to the point, and we uh, in. Uh, this tradition, we are really asserting the need to move further and looking deeper at the level of prejudice that each of us still hold and how we force that prejudice within our positionality and, how, and start to look at that because that is a level of comfort where sensual pleasures, the pleasure of being the, sort of the predominant, the majority, uh, meets the level of resistance we have to true equality, which may be a fairness issue that we hold with equal esteem, but refuse to look because it confronts the pleasure issue that I don't want to give up. I didn't think I had any of that until you know you begin to see what your position does for what my position does in terms of Caucasian that someone else doesn't have. Where, where one uh, African-American man said to me, you know, when I go in for an interview, I have to, um, I don't want to be the angry black. So I, there's a certain way I have to go into an interview or I'm completely rejected, out of hand. I don't have to do that. Another uh, person of color told me that uh, when they're walking, you know, you, you, they... I was just mentioning in Massachusetts, I could walk the loop, which is out in the country, and 
feel fine. They said, I can't do that. When I'm out in the country, I don't know what's coming at me. See, it's that level, that level of fear that only through our willingness to move deeper into these issues can we free up the whole culture. Not by maintaining our particular dominance. And then we begin to, we begin to break the ice for other people as we do so. Just in the same way 50 years ago that this first incrustation of prejudice was so clearly seen by many people. But we're not finished yet. And let us not claim that each of us are until we are without privilege in this culture. Okay, so rites and rituals. Let's move on here. I love this one because it just... We get caught in so many different ways in our spiritual lives, and our religious lives, thinking that form, if we just do the form, the form will be our salvation. That we can just, just meditate every single day. It doesn't matter what your mind is doing. The very act of meditation itself will uh, provide salvation. Or if you're even stuck a little... I mean, most of us see beyond lighting candles, incense, bowing, chanting, praying to God and all of that. Uh, but that's another level of rites and rituals which many, many people uh, uh, have infused their own power into. They believe that form will somehow allow them to bridge into the sacred. And no, may I say, just to clear up the issue, that no touch of the guru no special secret teaching, no anointment, no prayer will provide access to the truth. The truth is not inaccessible. It is available. It is completely, always, forever within reach. We don't have to we don't have to become an ascetic. We don't have to distort our bodies, contort our bodies in some certain way, or eat special foods, or be a vegetarian. You don't have to live, you know, according to scripture. You don't have to do any of that. But you do have to be sincere and want it. You have to have the intention for it. And if you're doing your mala beads, good. I'm glad you're doing your mala beads, but don't expect that to offer the sacred to you. There's no bridge from form to formlessness. Form just reproduces itself. And if I'm using form to think that somehow I'm going to get at the end of my 108 bead count a revelation, well, we're mistaken. You see, that's how this, I love this one because it wipes the table clean. It clears out the trash. There's only one thing that'll get us there, and that is our intent, our intention, our heart, the purity of our heart, the longing in our heart, the sincerity in us to go wherever we have to go and to relinquish whatever we have to relinquish for the truth, even pleasure, even our opinions, even our rites and rituals. And meditation can be ritualistic. 
Anything can be ritualistic. If you do it repeatedly, thinking that the very act of doing it itself will be the transforming quality. That's how thoroughly the Buddha was pronouncing in this, these points. In fact, if the famous Kalama Sutta says just that, the Kalamas were a clan during the Buddhist time and different spiritual teachers would come through there and they would uh, convince the Kalamas that this was the right way and then another teacher would come in and say, no, that's the wrong way, but this is the right way. And finally they were so confused they went to the Buddha and said, what's the right way? And the Buddha said, there isn't one. Feel the resonant in your own heart. If your own heart concedes or feels the preciousness of that truth, if it, if it nods in accordance with what is being said, if there's deep a resonance with what is being said, if there's realization of what is being said, then that's the truth. Not what somebody tells you to do, not what somebody, how somebody prepares you for it. Rites and rituals. Now we have five minutes left and we have the sense of self. (laughs) Now, the reason I don't want to spend a lot of time on this is because this is really the main theme of the entire Dependent Origination series. So you get a year of it, really. But the one thing I want to emphasize is... The, that we have to we have to want to see this it needs our interest why wouldn't you be interested in seeing it we wouldn't be interested in seeing it if we were bathing in pleasure all the time if pleasure was a summation of our life if it defined our life well guess what the sense of self, seeing the sense of self does. It alleviates or shows you the truth of where you are taking your stand, of where you are losing your reference, of where you are giving yourself away, your energy, your liveness away. And therefore, it has a stand in steady, uh, in steady stance to pleasure. It doesn't have us leaning into it. And many of us sense that, like climate change, we sense we're going to lose something very important to us. It doesn't take pleasure away. It doesn't say it's wrong. It doesn't say a pleasurable experience is a, is a fallacy. Don't do that. Turn away. It does not do that. Every one of you should know that. It's just that you don't lean into it. You don't want to keep it going. You let life move as it moves, pleasurable and unpleasurable, across the seams of the heart. And so it doesn't give you that as a solace, as an ending point as home plate. And for most of us, that's the single disadvantage of, of seeing ourself, is that seeing ourself, we see that the fuel that provides me to be myself is pleasure-seeking, pleasure-bathing. Oh, I don't want to see that. Let me... Let me work this thing so that I can keep my pleasure and feel spiritual at the same time. So then I'll get lost in rites and rituals. 
Because if you're going to have that kind of relationship to pleasure, you're going to be very formed within life. And formation, the only thing a, a sense of me formed can do is to seek rites and rituals for our salvation, to give us some solace, to believe that God is nearer when I pray to him or her, to have some sense of, of bringing God in. Well, you can bring God in. It's like two billiard balls. That's how close you get. Not very satisfactory. Formation doesn't open beyond itself to the formless. So things do have to be relinquished here. Because grasping is, it's, grasping's need, the need of grasping is to form you. That's what it's doing this for. To keep life a steady state, known and fixed, relevant, maneuverable. The logistics are all, it's all mapped out. And therefore I can navigate I can, I, can, I can move and know things and keep my separation and my distinction, my definition. And some of us think, well, you know, I can see what I'll do. This is, this is a trick. This is one I really like. There's the self with a small s, and I'll watch the self of, as a small s so that I'll become the self with a big s, so that I'll be universal. And then I can claim a, a broader territory that I am. And the Buddha was so clear. He, he went through, there were like 15 different ways, he said, in one sutta, where he says, and I'm everything, and that's, that's ignorance. I'm nothing, that's ignorance. I am myself, that's ignorance. And he just goes on like 17 different, and every one of them, he says, all of these are being led by ignorance. So the sense of self when, would love to claim more territory by being bigger and more pronounced than its little self-centeredness. And there is a feeling, there is a perception within the spiritual transformation process that gives you that distinct perspective, that I'm everything. That's why you get some leaders saying that I am God. From that perspective, that seems clear and true. But from that perspective, that's a view and opinion from that perspective. And if you understand that that's just a view and opinion and you have to let go of views and opinions, guess what? That perspective changes. And the next perspective comes. I am love. I am God. I am nothing. I am everything. Each one of you and opinion that can be asserted and halt one's spiritual journey all along the way. Arrested completely. Stand still. Fixated. 
there is no place to stand. There is no place to reference. There is no place to claim the final resting place. And that is the final resting place. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? So it's getting, uh, it's getting, uh, more difficult as we move through this chain because the grasping now is showing us the details of our lives in ways that name and form and consciousness and feelings didn't necessarily reveal. But now the grasping is taking us down to where we live, to our views, to our comfort level. And then it starts playing hardball with us. Now, you can leave. The door, of course, swings out as it swings in. Or you can take this on as a journey, as an adventure. Let me see, where do I rest now? What is, where is my life in excess? Is it, is it being lived the way I want it to be lived? Is, is what is important to me central in my life? Or is it peripheral? Let me just do an inventory here. So you can't be passive anymore. This is an engaged revelation. not from the pews of a sermon. Nice talk, oh, I don't know, it's better last week. No, it requires much more from you than that. Okay. So if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to... Yes, yes, sir. I, I moved from the group I was walking by and I saw the gathering in Japan. You just stopped in. Yeah. And uh, it just happened also that I'm from the Middle East and you spoke about oil and, uh, and stuff like that. But I, I find actually some of what you said. My experience living here in America and in the West could be fascinating. Uh, for example, the pleasure and having oil because it's actually pleasure. Uh, it's true on one level, but actually, if you look at the society itself, it's very short-sighted. And in, in reality, actually, I think it's harming the society rather than pleasure. So it's, it's this uh, immediate or temporary gratification.
See, that's the, uh, that's the, the point is that we think it's giving us something that in reality it's not. It's ultimately hurting us in ways that we do not realize. That's, that's the point of all of this. If it were only a one-way road where we're getting, you know, a lot from it and no one is suffering in relationship to the way we're grasping it, then it wouldn't be hurting anybody and we ourselves uh, would be the responsible party for our own pain. But it does hurt people. When we're 4% of the world's population and we use 25% of the resources, that hurts the world. That hurts the world. And we refuse because 24% is not enough. We need that 25%, even though the total sum of the resources are diminishing, we still expect the... Twi- so now it's not... the amount, the percentage has to increase because the total is diminishing. Thank you, sir. Yes. Okay. So, okay. So, <laughs> discouragement is the. <laughs> what are we sitting in this posture? Why are we doing anything? Why don't we just go home? And well, did it work? I mean, that's where you came from. That didn't seem to work either, did it? That's why you're all here. There is something that's gained by meeting in groups and sharing sincerity and looking and questioning and investigating our lives, uh, but not if we just expect the form to sort of take us through and we can kind of sleepwalk our way through it. It requires us showing up for our life and it requires us offsetting the ignorance at the head of the table with our awareness, right? That is not a right and ritual. Awareness, the ability to see and to understand something that we did not understand is not a right and a ritual. A ritual, a right and a ritual as I'm defining it is a is a condition, is a ritualistic way that we continue to do something, never really showing up, just hoping that the form itself will allow us some sort of, I don't know what we think it's going to do. If I bow to Jesus or pray, what, is it, what do we think that's going to do? I'm not sure what we think that's going to do. Doing my bead count or confessing or, I don't know. I mean, we have it all kind of, we don't know. We think there's some, somebody knows something we don't, so we give them the power, and we, don't, uh, we, we just reinforce our own doubt. And I don't know. The whole thing's just, just I don't know what. But if we take our, our true orientation to life, to dispel ignorance, to become more conscious, to see what our life is about, where we're turning, what we're doing, and to make it conscious, then... That is not ritualistic. That's not just doing the same thing each day. And if your meditation has that at its center, then you're not wasting your time. Even though the form may be consistent or regular, or you may sit, it's not ritualistic if you're really showing up for your meditation and asking those questions. But if you just think, oh, yeah, I've meditated for 13 years, and you can tell there's no... no, there's been no transformation, nothing's changed, or very little, then they're just expecting meditating itself, just the, the naming of sitting and, I don't know, following your breath or something. We've got to be 
willing to poke and prod reality, to look, to scratch our way through. That's what it takes. And that's what we're learning here, hopefully. I'm not taking your power away. If I am, I'm the wrong teacher for you. I'm giving your power back. And if you feel that, then you're welcome in the room. You should feel empowered. Your life should feel like it's yours to make. Your spiritual journey is coming from you and only you. And that there's no secret words that anyone can give you that is going to correct that orientation. That it's going to be your resonance and what you need to do to take your next step. And that's the path. Have I yelled at you? (laughs) I didn't mean to yell at you. (laughs) Is that it for the evening then? Okay. Thank you all.